Welcome to Crashing the War Party. I am joined by my stalwart co-host, Daniel Larson, as we make our way through the news of the new year. Wow, January is going by really fast. The war in Ukraine has opened up a number of fronts of debate here in Washington, whether it be on how hard the West should be helping to protract the Ukraine war, how long the U.S. can keep funneling money and weapons into that war, and what the security situation will look like after the war is over. In that vein, we will be talking to defense budget expert Bill Hartung in the second half. But first, let's talk about the broader view of European security today and after the war in Ukraine. Last week, the European Union and NATO signed a joint declaration to cooperate on, quote, growing geostrategic competition, resilience issues, and the protection of critical infrastructures. Other priorities of work should include, quote, emerging and disruptive technologies, space to security implications of climate change, foreign interference, and information manipulation. Generals, uh, Secretary General Stoltenberg underlined that the joint declaration, quote, recognizes the value of a more capable European defense that contributes positively to our security and is complementary to and inoperable with NATO. He further noted that the NATO-EU partnership, quote, will become an even more important force once Finland and Sweden become full NATO members. And that, quote, with their ascension, NATO will be protecting 96% of the citizens in the European Union and a higher share of its territory than ever before. Justin Logan, in a response for the, for, for the Cato Institute, said, this is, quote, a defeat for the American people. Washington should be handing European security off to the Europeans, not asking another generation of American taxpayers to foot the bill themselves, end quote. NATO and EU have the EU have 21 members in common, but what the EU doesn't have is the United States as a uh, security guarantor. And if this is a new cooperative hedge on security, it keeps the American hand in. This approach amounts to a transfer payment, Logan says, from American taxpayers to European ones. Um, Dan, how do you feel about this joint statement? Is it as problematic as Justin is making it out to be? And should we, how concerned should we be that this signals an even more permanent uh, position of the United States in European security uh, today and after um, the Ukraine war is over? Yeah, well, I, I think Justin is, is right on the mark here. Um, well, one of the problems that I've had with talk of continued NATO expansion, for instance, and bringing Finland and Sweden in, is that it keeps NATO at the center of all the European security discussions. It makes NATO the, the, the default institution for European security. And that means, in practice, the U.S. remains deeply involved in providing security for its European dependence. And so it, it reinforces that dependence. It, it encourages these governments to do as little as possible for their own security because they know that the U.S. will always be there to bail them out. And, of course, the U.S. constantly spending ever more on its military budget gives them every reason to believe that the U.S. will always be there to bail them out. And so I'm, we, we, we see things like this uh, joint declaration between the EU and NATO. Uh, it, it's essentially a, a capitulation on the part of Europeans that have previously talked about trying to have more autonomy in their own security affairs. Uh it's a capitulation to NATO saying that 
no, in fact, NATO will be the central institution and everything will orbit around that. Uh, and indeed, the declaration says NATO remains the foundation of collective defense for its allies and essential for Euro-Atlantic security. And therefore, uh, all talk of strategic autonomy that uh, French President Macron has tried to bring up and tried to, to keep alive, uh, all of that is going to be pushed back uh, to the margins. And we're going to see uh, increased dependence on the U.S., which means more U.S. resources, troop deployments, uh, and and attention diverted to Europe uh, at a time when there's really not a need for it. It's I mean it's counterintuitive. Everyone is paying attention now to the war in Ukraine uh, because of the Russian invasion uh, and the Russian aggression. But the war has revealed Russia to be far far weaker than we ever thought it could have been uh, in conventional terms. And so the the threat to Europe is actually less than we thought it was. But the 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 conventional response to that has been to deepen U.S. involvement and to deepen U.S. investment in Europe, uh, when this is exactly the time when we can start to hand over responsibilities to our allies and let them take up the burden. And so it's everything is going exactly the wrong direction of where we need to go. And um, and so it's, it's very discouraging in that way. Yeah, I remember when um, Russia first invaded in March of last year, there was a lot of talk about how the United States and NATO should have been tougher um, and providing more of a deterrent so that Russia knew we meant business and maybe wouldn't have decided that it was an optimal time for invasion. I don't buy that argument. I know that George Beebe, who I work with, does not buy that argument. Um, But do you think that that's an argument that's being made here, that with the EU and NATO working closer together on security issues that they can provide more of a deterrent against any future adversaries and any aggressive moves into, you know, one of our allies or partners' backyards. No, I mean, I I think in terms of of NATO deterrence, NATO deterrence has already been working. It's it's NATO deterrence has held just as you would expect it to. Uh, because the the only state that has been attacked uh, is inside of the alliance. Yeah, uh, and I mean, of course, I mean, NATO membership for Ukraine has been a, a very contentious issue for the last fifteen years, uh, because there there are competing theories about wh- which is more likely to be more provocative, actually trying to extend that guarantee to Ukraine or uh, failing uh, to extend it. Uh, I, I'm of course in the camp that has always argued that trying to offer a security guarantee to Ukraine uh, puts it squarely in Russia's crosshairs and invites exactly the kind of aggression that we've seen. Uh, And indeed, NATO membership was still on the table for Ukraine uh, right up until the invasion happened, and it it still is on the table. Uh, I think Stoltenberg has has publicly said on several occasions that Ukraine's future membership in NATO is still uh, an option and is still being considered seriously. And of course, the Ukrainian government has been banging a drum about this both before the invasion and ever since. Uh, so I, I tend to think that when, especially when it involves a country like Ukraine that for the Russians is a sort of a source of neuralgia, uh, where they're, they're extremely uh, hostile to the, the possibility of Ukraine being brought into a hostile alliance structure against them, uh, that, that was always... In my mind, the the more dangerous option, 
Um, and of course, once NATO had provided, tried to provide a membership action plan to Ukraine, as many people wanted to do in the past, uh, that would still have left a gap between when the plan was proposed and when Ukraine actually joined the alliance. And during that gap, you, you would have likely seen exactly the same thing that we've seen happen uh, over the last year, uh, but it would have happened sooner, uh, when Ukraine was probably in a worse position you know, to repel the attack uh, than they were. And so, uh, anyway, to come back to the, the earlier point about deterrence, I, I think deterrence for NATO allies and EU members uh, has held, uh, because the Russians have discovered that they can't even successfully invade Ukraine, much less take on the entire Western alliance. And then, so they're not even going to try. And so you, you hear these people saying that if we don't stop them in Ukraine, they'll just keep rolling westward and take over one country after another. That's nonsense, because not only have they proven that they can't do that, uh, but they've shown no willingness to risk escalation with NATO because they understand that they're not going to come out of that conflict uh, in good shape either. So... So I, I don't I don't see the need to to keep reemphasizing or, or or building up even larger deterrence when when what we have has already worked, and so that's why all, all of these deployments of U.S. troops into Eastern Europe really don't make any sense for us, and they don't they're they're not necessary for European security uh, because they they weren't necessary earlier either. The, the the guarantees that they have from the U.S. come to their aid if they were attacked. Uh, have been enough, and and that should be that should be sufficient. Uh, we we really ought to be scaling back our involvement and um, troop presence in Europe uh, back to to the levels that they were at, say fifteen or twenty years ago. Uh, they they don't need to be uh, they don't need to be as high as they are, and and we could afford to do a lot less than we're doing. Yeah, and you know, but but you're right. We're doing actually we're actually doing more. I know this Friday uh, they're having an, yet another meeting in Germany uh, for the contact group for defense of Ukraine, which is a number of these NATO countries in the region all uh, and their militaries have formed a, an organization to share logistics, to weapons, training, uh, you know, surveillance, whatnot in, in aid of Ukraine. And it's just another institutional um, manifestation of this growing U.S. European security alliance that's not going anywhere. And they, they are expected to talk about um, sending more advanced weapons into Ukraine. I know, as you know, there's been a huge push uh, for Western tanks and, and beyond that. And I think the pressure is on Germany right now to give up some of its Leopard 2 tanks. I know there's the constant pr pressure on the United States to provide more advanced weapons, but the fact is that we have formalized a lot of these um, joint activities uh, around the war in Ukraine, and it will be interesting to see where these groupings go once the war is over and this if this joint declaration by the EU and NATO is any indication, there seems to be more energy going into um, uh, building those alliances and, and cementing 
the U.S. presence in European security rather than to start allowing the Europeans to take on their own security responsibilities. Where, where do you think this is all coming from? And I, and I know that's probably a, a naive question, but as you mentioned, uh, Macron and France has been very adamant that the EU or Europe uh, in particular should be building its own at you, uh, its own uh, military defense without the United States. That it, it, he has been very um, circumspect, if not critical, of the future of NATO. Uh, it seems to me like he's this. This is a is a loss for him and that effort. What where is this coming from? Are these EU uh, security elites who want to keep the U.S. entrenched? Uh, in their uh, security forever. And this is a way of, of saying, hey, you know, the EU doesn't have its own defense. Uh, if anything, it's very minimal bringing the, the NATO in to provide that missing element is the best way forward. And uh, that also would keep the U.S. firmly uh, invested in what happens here. Yeah, well, so I think there are a few sources for it. One is that you have NATO as an institution that wants to uh, keep itself uh, relevant and to make itself seem as, as relevant as possible uh, 30 years after its reason for being ceased to exist. Uh, and so the, all of the, the officials that are involved in the institution and that have supported the institution over the decades uh, have a vested interest in keeping it going and finding new reasons for it to keep going and to keep expanding. Um, and so uh, that that's one source. Uh, another is, yes, I think a lot of European political elites would like to keep the U.S. firmly involved uh, in European security because it it saves them the trouble of having to do it for themselves. Uh, it saves them uh, the resources that they would have to devote to it themselves. Um, and coming back to Justin Logan's piece, uh, he he makes a very strong case uh, for the strategic autonomy of Europe uh, because he says the alternative is for Washington to keep European countries on the dole forever. Uh, and I think the, the other source for uh, this deep involvement of the U.S. in Europe uh, is is coming from Washington where you have a whole generation of people that have been brought up on the, the ideas of uh, Atlanticism as central to our Vital interests, and we, you know, we must keep that alliance and our role in the alliance uh, as vital as possible, uh, because they they convince themselves that this is really essential uh, to keep doing, even though uh, the the actual security need for our involvement is no longer there, and so it's it's a way for the U.S. to exercise influence, to project power, and to to really remain the dominant power in Europe. Uh, going forward. And I think that's very attractive to a lot of people in Washington, and that's why they want to keep it uh, in place. And so uh, when you have all of these governments that want to stay dependent, and you have the the superpower that wants to keep them that way, uh, it's very hard to, to break out of that uh, stranglehold. Uh, and as, as Macron has found out, he, he doesn't have a lot of takers for his suggestions, because so many people are comfortable with the status quo and, and want to keep reinforcing it and, and keeping it in place. And so, unfortunately, reform is, is farther away than ever. 
We are excited to welcome Bill Hartung on the show today. Bill is a Quincy colleague with a long background in Pentagon and military analysis. He was previously the director of the Arms and Security Program at the Center for International Policy and the co-director of the Center's Sustainable Defense Task Force. He is the author of Prophets of War, Lockheed Martin, and the Making of the Military-Industrial Complex, in addition to several other books over the years. Bill is here with me in the studio, which is a real treat. Thanks for coming in, Bill. Yes, glad to be here. So I have to ask first off, what do you think of the suggestion that we are seeing in the news today about the depletion of our weapons stockpiles? Are we really seeing a depletion of our stockpiles? Does it matter? And how is the powerful defense industry taking advantage of that? Well, it's interesting because, of course, the stockpiles themselves, the levels are classified. So people are guessing a bit. Um, Mark Hansian, who's a pretty pro-Pentagon guy at CSIS, um, has said they can work it out. You know, they'll supply different kinds of systems. The Europeans will weigh in, which is very different from the contractors who are saying, you know, the sky is falling. Please give us more factories, more subsidies. Let's supersize the military-industrial complex for in perpetuity, uh, which I think is absurd. Um, so there's a little bit of a uncertainty, but but I don't think what's going on in Ukraine and the, the munitions being sent warrants uh, this kind of notion that you have to not only build up the military-industrial complex, but also reduce uh, all kinds of regulations to keep the contractors from engaging in price gouging and cost overruns and so forth. So it's, you know, the contractors are laughing all the way to the bank, but I'm not sure it has a strategic rationale at that level that they're kind of milking it. Yeah. I mean, what is your sense and and what does Mark say about the actual depletion of, say, uh, ammunition? I mean, were we ready to supply another country with conventional weapons in the way that we are doing now? Is there a real cost that we're seeing to our stockpiles that's, that's, that's tangible and not inflated by the defense industry? Well, I think, you know, were the war to go on for years, uh, you would see an effect because it's much easier to use the ammunition than it is to build uh, new ammunition or any other missile or so forth. It can take months and years, whereas you can use up large quantities in days, weeks, and months. So there could reach a point where that's an issue. And that's, of course, why the industry is crying for more money. And they're not going to invest their own money. They want the government to build factories for them and so forth. Um, but um, what was the second part of the question? Uh, the second part of the question was, I mean, are we at a real risk of, and I think you answered that, Yeah. That oh, over I, time we, we would be. I had another thought, which is that uh, for a number of years, they've reduced uh, purchases of bread and butter, things like ammunition, to make room for, you know, Star Wars and the F-35 and a new generation of nuclear weapons. So they, they've neglected that part of the budget. Uh, and now they're saying, oh, my goodness. We need these things now. So, so, and that we even saw that during the Iraq War, where they didn't have appropriate vehicles or body armor. Body or, armor, yeah. I so that. things that are relevant sometimes lose out to these big ticket kind of high tech systems, which are big money makers, but don't necessarily align with a sensible uh, strategy. What do you think about um, the United States giving the Patriot missile system to Ukraine? I know that we're training 
Ukrainian soldiers right now, right here in the United States to to man it. Um, is it going to be a game changer or um, I mean, what are your thoughts in terms of, of, of the significance? I think it's more symbolic than real, just in the sense that one Patriot battery is not going to cover a lot of Ukraine. Uh, they would need multiples. And also for some of the things uh, like drones and cruise missiles, they're not as effective. So I think it's partly Biden trying to say, we're with you. We're willing to give you sophisticated technology uh, while la- laying back on some other things like long-range missiles. So uh, at least at this level, I think it has more of a symbolic um, you know, relevance. Although, of course, it depends how Moscow sees it. You know, Because in war, people engage in worst-case scenarios. And if he thinks it's the opening wave of a you know, um, flood of new sophisticated um, missile defense um, defense equipment, air defense, um, perhaps that would, uh, you know, pose a escalation on his side. So there's always that kind of psychological factor that's hard to uh, gauge, you know. Let me ask one more question before I hand it off to Dan. How excited are the our top uh, defense contractors today, the Lockheed Martins, Raytheon, General Dynamics, Northrop Grumman, and Boeing, how excited! I mean, and I, I hate to say this because um, I'm, I'm seem, it sounds cringy, but they must be getting a hell of a lot of business today uh, with this war. And how much can we trust that they aren't um, uh, overly pro- profiting from it or unduly profiting from it? Because we're hearing things like, "Oh, we need more HIMARS," but you know, it's going to take a while. And we have to ramp up, and here's some money to build some new facilities to, to, to ramp up that production, you know, how much are they benefiting? How, how much are, how much is this war been an advantage to their bottom line? Well, the first thing I've noted is they've kind of reined in the gloating, mm. you know, early on they were telling their investors, essentially, this is great for us, you know, and, and, and keep an eye on our, our stock and our profits. Uh, they've reined that in. Of course, now they've flipped it to, we are the arsenal of democracy, uh, which the people of Yemen would be surprised to hear. Um, so they're trying to use it for reputational purposes. But in terms of the flows of money, some of it will be over time, you know, because they used uh, military stocks and now they have to replenish those. So those contracts could play over um, some months and years. And that's where we have to keep an eye out because they're going to say, well, if you want it quickly, it's going to cost you. And that's where the price gouging and the cost overruns will come into play and there'll be much less scrutiny of those follow-on contracts uh, than there is of the, you know, the drawdowns and the the initial uh, provision of of weaponry. So uh, I think that's got to be watched. And and also there was under emergency procedures, you know, like they don't have to supply price and availability data to the Pentagon, which is very wonky sounding, but basically the Pentagon needs that to bargain effectively over price. Um, and there's a number of other things, multi-year procurement, which Adam Smith has said, well, yeah, you can get screwed on that, but maybe it's necessary in this instance. So, uh, you know, it, it locks in a supplier and it makes it harder to have competition. So so they're kind of using the war to get things that were long on their wish list mm-hmm. that make their lives easier. Um, and then, of course, Ukraine is being used as an argument to raise the Pentagon budget generally. Uh, you know, we're in a new Cold War 
Russia is going to march through Europe, which of course is absurd if you look how they performed in Ukraine. Uh, but, but that atmosphere that's been created, um, you know, lends itself uh, along with the, um, threat inflation over China to ever higher budgets. So they'll make more money on that in the long term, even then from the supplying of Ukraine. So it's, it's kind of, um, it all around is, is padding their bottom lines and also uh, they're using it to kind of trying to uh, rebuild their reputations. Uh, you know, there was, there was an arms lobbyist I used to debate all the time and he said, well, you know, nine out of 10 years, Bill, we're the merchants of death, but when you need us, we're the arsenal of democracy. So they're in their arsenal of democracy phase now. Yes. Hi, Bill. Thanks for coming on the show. We appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I was going to the, the merchants of death uh, issue because uh, you, you mentioned Yemen, and of course uh, the U.S. is still providing extensive arms sales to Saudi Arabia, UAE, uh, and other members of the coalition. Uh, and there, there was a brief moment last fall when it seemed as if there might be some significant resistance to further arms sales uh, because of anger over the oil production cut. And and the administration's talk of consequences. Now all of that seems to have gone away, and we're uh, we're having even closer security cooperation with the Saudis now. Uh, all of it uh, supposedly justified by uh, the the uh, alleged threat from Iran. Uh, and so, uh, do do you see any significant resistance to more arms sales to these states uh, in the coming year? Uh, and and what do you, what role do you think a new war powers resolution on Yemen might have in that debate? Uh, well, the Biden administration has been, I think fickle would be a kind word, um, you know, because when he campaigned, he called Saudi Arabia pariah. His first foreign policy speech, he said they'd uh, stop support for offensive operations and relevant arms sales. Now, he left a huge loophole there about so-called defensive weapons. And they probably would argue that what they've sold so far fits that bill. But of course, if you're arming a regime that has waged a war that has directly and indirectly killed hundreds of thousands of people, the arms sale itself is almost an endorsement Mm -hmm. of their conduct. And it's certainly not holding them accountable. Um, So, you know, Congress was exercised about their collaborating with Russia on oil prices. Uh, Menendez said we should, you know, freeze most sales. Uh, Rokana and Senator Blumenthal wanted a year suspension of sales. All the administration says is uh, there will be consequences. And they said they were going to be deliberate about it. And apparently deliberate means just hope it passes and you can get on with business as usual. So so it puts it back in Congress's court. Um, and I guess the question is, with a Democratic president, can you get over the top on a war powers resolution? Um, or not. And, um, you know, a lot of the amendments that have been done to the National Defense Authorization Act that would have impeded sales to Saudi Arabia over the last few years have been stripped out behind closed doors at the last minute. So the war powers approach is probably the best hope. Um, but it's very hard to gauge. And, and um, of course, with uh, the Democrats don't have a majority in the House anymore, although in the Senate in past years, They've gotten enough Republican votes when it's a close margin, uh, you know, to, to, to make it work. And I, I can't picture Biden vetoing a war powers resolution or attempting to. Uh, I think it'd be too embarrassing for him, but I think it's, it's in play and it's the only kind of play that's available at the moment politically. So, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that it, it will continue to be a strong, um, you know, approach. And of course, you know, they got Sanders to sort of, 
hold back because they said they would work with him. And I think that pledge may be going the same way as the pledge of consequences oh boy. for the oil right. manipulations. We don't know. I, I haven't heard from his office if, if the administration has compromised in some way. And, and what's to compromise? I mean, we shouldn't be arming this regime at all, you know. Right. right. Absolutely. Um, and in your review of Biden's foreign policy record at the end of last year, you wrote that the administration has squandered too many resources and too much attention on military solutions to complex security problems, crowding out its better instincts in the process. And obviously the relationship with the Saudis and their handling of Yemen is a good example of that. Um, how concerned are you that the administration could end up using force against Iran if the nuclear deal finally collapses? Well, they've made statements that everything's on the table, uh, which are troubling. Um, there's always this kind of sense of having to look tough and weaponizing human rights, because obviously this regime in Iran has had horrific human rights abuses, but attacking and waging war in a country has never been an effective way of improving human rights, not to mention its impact on the average person in the targeted country. Um, so I'm hoping that's more rhetoric than reality, but you know, you don't know in these situations. Um, and there's also the, um, you know, what, what's the political effect of, you know, of wanting to look tough domestically and so forth. So I, I think we have to keep an eye on that. Um, you know, even if Iran had nuclear weapons, there'd be pretty much a situation of deterrence in the Middle East. Um, so, but that's, I mean, you're not supposed to say that. So, but I, I, I did. And this is going <laughs> to be heard by people. So, so be it. Um, right. Right here, folks. That's, that's okay. We, we say it all the time, so that, that's, that's fine. <laughs> um, and um, lo looking at the, the overall military budget, uh, which has now ballooned up to over $858 billion, I believe, is the, the latest number. Uh, who knows? It may go higher uh, before the end. Uh, it seems to increase, increase every year regardless of actual security needs. Uh, that not only wastes resources, but also encourages policymakers to default to military options and to make foreign policy even more militarized than it was, uh, while also underfunding practically every other foreign policy tool available to us. Uh, so how does the U.S. Uh, reverse that or recover from this over-militarization of its foreign policy uh, when the, the pressure to keep spending more and more uh, on the military is so... Uh, yeah, well, there was, there, there's been some push in the last few years for a 10% cut in the Pentagon budget, but of course... Mm -hmm. At this point, 10% wouldn't even get you back to where they were when they first called for it. Wow. Uh, because, you know, an $80 billion increase one year to the next is larger than the military budget of every country in the world but China. So from 22 to 23, um, there's been that huge increment. But but the 10% cut, um, you know, didn't pull a huge number of votes. There was a vote to not accept the congressional proposed increases uh, a year or two ago that got 142 votes out of 435 members of the House. And the thing is, that was a good showing compared to past cases where, I mean, even the notion of suggesting a 10% cut was not in the cards uh, for many years during during the height of the war on terror. So, um, yeah, I, th I think there'd have to be more public pressure. And I think people, you know, f some people feel like, yeah, the system's rigged, but I can't do anything about it. Some people feel like, well, they're the experts. If they say we need it, we need it. Some of them are like, well, it's an insurance policy, uh, you know, a little more. What's the big deal? But, of course, the big deal is, as you said, it starves other approaches. I mean, 
in 2020, Lockheed Martin got $75 billion in Pentagon contracts, more than the entire State Department. So when your biggest defense contractor is getting more than you're spending on diplomacy mm-hmm. across the board, that's a huge indicator uh, that you're headed in the wrong direction. And of course, military approaches have been dismal failures in Iraq and Afghanistan, arms sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, these have not brought stability, security, or peace. So the idea of doubling down on that, um, I, I think, is a terrible idea. And, and once you've got that as your kind of overdeveloped muscle, I think the possibilities of using it more often are much greater. Um, whereas, in, I mean, you know, in some places we, we barely had ambassadors uh, in, in places of crisis, much less uh, beefing up the State Department, which would also require kind of training new diplomats. Many of them had fled um, and I, I think just a new mindset uh, that diplomacy, that there's kind of a, a media and, and establishment view that if there's a crisis and you don't use force, you're not doing anything. When in fact, diplomacy to me is the tougher policy intellectually or or just in terms of tough mindedness instead of, you know, the military approach is the easy route, uh, even though it's been so disastrous in so many cases. So I know we're running out of time, but I had a quick question. There's the big picture uh, about the amount of money that we're putting into the budget. And we have people, you know, members of Congress year after year who are talking about cutting the top line. But then there's like the granular level in terms of like getting at the real problems in the military industrial complex, the waste and the fraud and abuse. Is there anybody in that last part? that you think on the Hill right now who are actually addressing those issues and have been tough, tough minded on it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking Senator Warren has been a, a critic of the defense industry and how they operate. Who should we be watching on the Hill that would, would actually start to, 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 to make a dent and, and, and the military industrial complex and the way that they're behaving, I guess, specifically in the Ukraine war. Well, I think, Senator Warren has been a good um, watchdog about things like price gouging, cost overruns, exaggerated um, estimates of inflation to throw more money at the Pentagon. Um, in terms of uh, Ukraine, I don't, I'm not as clear. I, mean, I know some members have called for at least better monitoring and use monitoring. Um, but, but I think the issue of uh, price gouging on the supplies to Ukraine and the ripple effect on uh, Pentagon procurement practices is ripe uh, for a focus. And so I don't know if it'll be Senator Warren or another, but of course, you know, a lot of these things have been, um, you know, you say anything about controlling, being more careful about monitoring aid to Ukraine. And, and there's this kind of cold war attack that says, right. Oh, you're pro Putin. Yeah. Uh, but of course, if you support Ukraine, you would want them not to be cheated. Mm-hmm. You would want the weapons not to drain out to non-state groups. All of these things actually would help Ukraine. So we're in this weird kind of Alice in Wonderland world where things that really are somewhat neutral uh, in terms of um, where one stands on the war have been sort of used uh, to attack skeptics. Yep. Uh, and even people whose skepticism is quite modest, uh, so that gets in the way of, of good policy. 
Well, I appreciate your candor on on these issues. Uh, it's very important, and I found I find that your voice is is strong and clear and and non partisan in terms of like your efforts at defense reform. So thank you so much for coming on. I hope to have you back. Yes. Well, we need more of these conversations. Yes. So um, I will make sure everybody's listening. Everybody I know. That's not, that's not a huge group, but it, it might help. Thanks, Bill. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again for tuning into today's episode. If you enjoy and value real conversations such as these, please leave us a five-star rating on your favorite podcaster of choice. Right now, Crashing the War Party can be found on Stitcher, TuneIn, and at Substack at crashingthewarparty.substack.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Special thanks to our editor, Remzo W. Martinez, the Crashing the War Party team, and to you, our listeners. Let's create a more peaceful world, one episode at a time. <laughs>